Hello, welcome to Neurodiversity University. We're grateful to have you guys listening in again. I'm here with Marissa Davis. This is Brandon Park. We've got Jack Flight and John Conway from Edge Advance, and they're going to talk to us a little bit about the neurodiverse population, how they kind of came to realize there was a need in their area for helping these students. And Jack's also going to talk to us about PDA. <laughs> oh, I can't remember. <laughs> well, welcome, guys. We're happy to have you guys here. Kind of stole you away for a little bit. So tell me a little bit about each of you guys, maybe how you guys came together. Great. Well, thanks for having us. So the program that we originally started is Edge Learning and Wellness, which is more of a neurotypical program that's been around since 2011. In a horrible, boring city, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah, in the dreary Midwestern city of Chicago. Yeah. (laughs) No, but pretty cool, pretty cool space, right downtown the loop. Definitely uh, very much an urban program, and we really value and take full advantage of all that Chicago has to offer. So that program has been up and running for almost a decade now, and we've always, I would say, from even the very beginning, we're getting a smaller percentage of students who had some diversity, neurodiversity or learning disabilities, things like that. And they always, we always, it was, they were a welcome addition to the program. They really enriched the program in a lot of ways. But as I think many people have been talking about over the years, and certainly at this conference we're at right now, those numbers are growing where they're, you know, the opportunities are becoming more available. And we were starting to get more phone calls and really sort of made a decision that, you know, we had talked about some expansion in other locations geographically, and then thought, well, why not grow in any area of programming that there seems to be a need for? And we thought we could probably do this differently enough that would be unique from other programs. And that's sort of how we got started and then put a search out for the person and people that would run this program. And that's how we got to know Jack. And I love it too, that you guys, you reach out to me. I know you reach out to lots of other people to start Mm -hmm. getting ideas and thinking it through and, and like being very thoughtful and intentional. And like, to me, that's a wonderful quality to have. Yeah. So, and this is, I'm not, well, and as you guys have most certainly learned to have, having done podcasts with other folks in this field, there's, we're a giving budge, right? I mean, we really, I think most people really do want what's best for the clients, students, parents, families, yeah. school systems. That's all why that. we do it. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, definitely reaching out to folks and getting information and, and going from there. And we're obviously still building, right? Yeah. We're three or four months open and looking forward to more of those great conversations. So then, Jack, how did you guys kind of come to work together? Well, I got hired. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I've had a a long history in working with people with neurodiverse brain structures. Mm -hmm. Personal experience, I've got a granddaughter who is diagnosed autistic. I've got a great-grandson who's on the spectrum as well. But my, my own children had learning disabilities. And so... I learned early on in my life that they needed advocacy. And so as I came into this field, this is a second career for me. So as I came into this field, I was involved in a lot of need initiatives. I opened a inpatient unit of, we call it the ACT unit, Advanced Child Treatment Unit. That was a fantastic unit. We did great work, but it wasn't sustainable financially. And so we had to close it. Then I ran some group home programs for children that were intellectually disabled as well as autistic. Um, And then I've done a couple other things in between, but then this opportunity came up. Uh, David Ventrelli, who's the executive director, worked with me earlier in my career. And so he had reached out and said, you know, anybody might be interested. I 
tell me more about it. And so I came on. And so I met John through the interview process, and we've worked closely since then. So I've, I've only been with the program since July of this past year, and I love every minute of it. It's a great program. It's a great location. And I love the students we get to work with. That's amazing. Oh, go ahead. I, was, I know John was excited about having you. It's on board. So. <laughs> So, yeah. I, I hear you bring some interesting new research and stuff to the table, yeah. and I'd like to hear a little bit more. I, I keep hearing about PDA. public displays of something. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's the PDA I'm thinking. Oh. <laughs> no, it's definitely more. not the PDA you're <laughs> thinking of. So, um, as we started getting students in, you know, very diverse needs. And so I started looking for some things that were going to work better with some of the students because they weren't responding to what would typically be thought of interventions you would use with children on the autism spectrum or young people on the autism spectrum. Uh, Things like the regular structure, the transition warnings and things like that. We found this pathological demand avoidance idea that came out of the United Kingdom and really it's been around since the 1980s. And so a woman by the name of Elizabeth Newson started talking about it, and she started publishing about 2011. And so it hasn't been a lot of stuff in the literature. And so what we find is there's a profile under the autism spectrum of individuals who are obsessively resistant to even everyday demands and requests. So just asking somebody to make their bed, put their dishes in the dishwasher, pick their clothes up off the floor, they would avoid it. And their avoidance can be really extreme. Like typically not anything of violence or aggression, but verbal outbursts, Mm -hmm. kicking things, yelling things, these social outbursts to push people away and get people to stop making those demands on them. So interesting story there. One young person, whenever he eats with a group of people, he eats with his hands. No matter what it is, it could be, you know, roasted vegetables, and he uses his hands to eat. The interesting thing is, I've observed him in a restaurant. Going, He'll go in a restaurant by himself and order, and eat with utensils perfectly fine. So there is a resistance to eating with other people, and he attempts to avoid eating with other people by his behaviors. So push him away. Push him away. Yeah. yeah. So eating with your fingers is not socially acceptable in most, in all in our society, I guess. Well, and the most common intervention probably would be if you're gonna eat like that, you're gonna have to go eat by yourself. Yeah. Fine by me. That's yeah. that's yeah. We're just that's, that's the goal. goal. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm gonna leave because I can't. I don't like watching you. And then great, that works for me too. So also to avoid social interactions to be part of a group, which is really interesting because. To avoid being part of a group, blow up, throw things, yell, not really threaten, just, you know, almost a temper tantrum. And yet, we find these individuals really want to be part of a team. They like being accepted as part of a team. But the group interactions, the unstructured group interactions, are what triggers this demand avoidance. Is it more of like the unknown, do you think, of going into situations or... There could be a a factor in that. They just don't get anything out of the interaction. Now, conversely, they're really good at role-playing. So if we wanted to have them interact with somebody else, and we set it up as a role-play with some structure around it, 
they generally, people with PDA generally like that and enjoy that. They do really well at it. So it's it's just these interesting things. When I first read about it, and I only barely touched on it at one point in my career, and I was like, oh, I'm really excited about it. And then I got lost in some other things. But I remember <laughs> reading about uh, someone that had it, and they had become a really good actor. Mm-hmm. So acting was actually a way of being in a system and having structure around it. And so they actually did really well as an actor. So. Yeah. Which I thought was great. <laughs> however, however, might not do so well as an improv actor. No, be horrible improv actor. Yeah. So it seems like this is tied to anxiety, a lot of anxiety. And in fact, one of the young people will often, when we talk about something, he'll he'll tell me something, and then he'll say, "Does that make sense?" Always oh, checking back. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's like his favorite term, but it keeps him in control, and that's a big criteria we see and people that fit this PDA profile. So so right now we're calling it a PDA profile, part of the autism spectrum, a PDA profile. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it'll get into DSM quickly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's also a lot of, as typical in the autism spectrum disorders, a lot of sensory issues that go hand in hand mm-hmm. with it. And so avoiding things like walking down the street under the L, you know, Chicago, we've got the L tracks blocked from us. Mm-hmm. And so often to get anywhere on foot, you're walking under the L tracks. And when the L's, L goes overhead, it can be quite distressing mm-hmm. uh, because of the sensory overload. Yeah. Well, yes. and I've mentioned this on our podcast before, but uh, the emotional circuitry, you know, from the amygdala into the brainstem and up into the cerebellum, it's sitting right on that brainstem. And so sensory sensitivity is always tied into emotional sensitivity in a way like this PDA is to me a form of emotional sensitivity, which leads to anxiety. So when you're really emotionally sensitive, then anything that's going to create kind of an emotional upregulation, you're like, oh, that's too much. And, that, and an unstructured emotional interaction is going to upregulate those emotional, which creates anxiety. And then, and then the avoidance, I, you know, it's kind of the way I've processed it, at least with my professor. So. So if you think about somebody with this uh, profile being in school or being in a program Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of expectations, Mm -hmm. you have to do this. You know, uh, our educators, they like to give directives and they expect them to be followed. Um, So so a person with PDA is constantly trying to avoid the demands. Now, now some of them are really sophisticated. A lot of these folks are really smart, too. IQs upwards towards 150. Mm-hmm. And so they're really smart. They, they find ways to get by in academic circles until they start to get to the age where they have to make adult decisions, what we call adulting, right? Mm-hmm. And so we see a lot of problems as they get to, to have to be in social situations, have to be in situations where they're less structured, they don't get the same accommodations in college or a job that you do in high school or grade school. And so they really tend to struggle with directives and rules. And so what we've learned is instead of giving directives and rules, we ask questions or make implications. And so instead of make your bed before you come out of your apartment, it might be, what have you done before you come out of your apartment? Is there anything else you should do? And so for a therapist, it's kind of normal. That's the way we talk to our clients. But for think about staff in schools or even in a program, direct care staff that doesn't have that same training and, right. and mindset, 
and they expect people to follow the rules and expectations. And that becomes very, very difficult for these young people. And that's what led me to search uh, more information about this pathological demand avoidance. Very interesting. We had talked about this before. You said that you're also seeing other diagnoses like ODD, oppositional defiance disorder, and stuff like that showing up there too. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, you know, when you talk to people in the field about PDA, they'd say, well, that sounds like oppositional defiant disorder. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of, not a lot, 30% of people on the spectrum get diagnoses of oppositional defiant disorder as well. Mm-hmm. But what Which if it makes me that? angry? Yeah. <laughs> I always yeah, say, oppositional. Yeah. I have young clinicians, I want to tear those pages out of their DSM oppositional defiant disorder and content disorder. Yeah. I don't think they should be around. But if these individuals are misdiagnosed as ODD and the interventions are different, you know, the interventions are different. They, the callous, unemotional traits that we see in individuals that we diagnose with ODD, they don't work. The same interventions don't work with these young people that have demand avoidance. Because it's a neurological issue right. and it's their sensitivity, anxiety that's bubbling up and creating it. And when you look at it more neurologically, it's a completely different beast. It looks behavioral, mm-hmm. but it isn't. Yeah. Right. So the other thing, some people will talk about attachment disorder as being, this sounds a lot like attachment disorder. And I see attachment disorders in a lot of things, but it's qualitatively different than somebody with an attachment disorder. And it probably would take three or four of these sessions yeah. to talk about that, yeah. unpack that. So really, and the other thing is some people say it's just a reframing of autism spectrum disorder, but it's it's so different yeah. than our typical or atypical <laughs> autism spectrum it, disorder. It, it's, it's a clear vein that, that yeah. needs to be understood and explored better. It doesn't mean they don't have some other commonalities with autism, but we need some, they need some specific direction in that area. So again, in the United Kingdom, there's some questionnaires, assessments kicking around. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, the research is, is still new. Yeah. But there's some diagnostic criteria that's been proposed. So there's 10, just going back to our DSM kind of format, there's 10 diagnostic criteria. Six of them are essential for diagnosing, comfortable with being in role player pretending, like I, I spoke about, continuing to resist and avoid ordinary demands of life. Demand avoidance can use social strategies, um, things like eating with your hands or throwing a temper tantrum, changeable mood and impulsivity, mm-hmm. obsessive behavior that's often focused on other people, so not necessarily OCD type things, but obsessive behaviors, dislike, severe dislike of somebody or, or severe, almost stalking-like behavior, always looking for people. Mm-hmm. In fact, the one young man, he'll come in into a meeting all the time looking for somebody and, and not really needing anything, just looking for that person because that contact means something. Mm-hmm. And then it's surface sociability, but not a deep sense of sociability. So those are the six that are required. And there's four optional traits. Uh, delayed speech development, which again is something we often see in, in the autism population. Some neurological involvement. So that's, as you suggested, there are several uh, neurological impairments we may see. A passive early history, so not a lot going on earlier in our life. And the sensory differences that we see. So a lot of these things we do see in autism spectrum, but there are some differences that aren't accounted for in our normal way we look at autism spectrum disorders. Interesting. 
Well, that was a really good overview, I think. And it leaves a lot of, I don't know, I want to know a lot about it myself. I want to learn more. But yeah, I'd love some. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I haven't looked at it in like 12 years. And I only looked at it for a few months. And so, yeah, I'd love to. Most of the information out there is written by individuals that have self-diagnosed or experienced PDA as, as who they are. Mm-hmm. And so they've done a lot of blogging. So you're saying this is true of yourself? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess it'd be better to ask John. <laughs> <laughs> so we all avoid things at times. Fair enough. Um, well, John, is there anything else that you want to kind of add in to research or what how you guys are using it or anything well i'm excited i'm excited about about it i mean obviously it's always nice to have a better understanding of something and you know a lot of times i think in the industry especially in my role is sort of outreach and program development and we always want to sort of be the ones to uncover the new Mm -hmm. exciting thing but what i was really interested in when i started doing a little bit of research and and looked at some of the links that jack sent was this isn't really that new it's been around for a while it's just sort of as they might say coming across the pond right they're finally moving across to and i think sometimes and probably most cultures are like this but i think sometimes here in the states and the dsm is a great example of this we're very slow to move or to adopt things that aren't tested and that sort of thing. So I just think it's great for us to have an opportunity to explore some of this and if it helps make sense of some of the um, things that we're seeing with our students and moreover, if it helps with our, helps with staff and implementation and educating parents and giving them some more information to learn about. Again, going back to the very purpose of this podcast, it's all about education. Yeah, so really, again, appreciate the time and the opportunity and the invitation to talk with you guys and yeah, we really appreciate we'll you guys it. taking time. And yeah, please share, you know, as you're learning more, please keep us in the loop. I'd love to learn more. So so the takeaway example is we've got this one young man and he, the life coach, we have life coaches that work individually with the students and he was really struggling with him. And so when I discovered this, I, I shared a couple links with him. I said, read this. And so he read it and he tried it right away and he sent me a message back. He says, I tried this, it works. It's a miracle. (laughs) And so if we are treating individuals or intervening with individuals in ways that don't work for them, we often don't get the results we're looking for. And so if we don't have any other tools in our toolbox, any other way to understand people, uh, very diverse people, then we fail. Got to find new tools. We got to find new tools. (laughs) And this, I think, helps people understand some individuals in a different way. And it's important. Well, thank you. That's that's awesome. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. 